What's with your angle of your camera? I'm just seeing up your nose. It's not delightful, Yoram. There we go. <laughs> lower, lower. <laughs> Hello and welcome to, to Plants and Pipettes. Wow, we were synchronized then. I'm Tegan. I'm Yoram. Hi. And we have a podcast that you're listening to now that's about plant science. Hopefully you knew that already and that's why you joined. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the very first episode for some of our new of our listeners. That would be nice. Mm. Um, clap your hands if you're the it's this, if this is the first time that you're listening to this show right now. Um, this way we'll know. Mm. <laughs> pause for pause for response. Pause for response. Mm, good, good. Lots of mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. very good. Feathering Imagine trying applause. to do an interactive um, program where you have to just mimic like. St- simulate the the interaction you know <laughs> pretending that there's a two-way conversation like these old vhs games where um they yeah you got your board game together with a vhs cassette and the vhs cassette sort of assumed it would at, at which point you would react to certain things that would give you an input and then they would pause and wait for your response and then it was like yeah good call blah 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 um i think we should do mm. a podcast just like this my dad was really into um, like all of this kind of facial animation stuff and linking it to like really basic AI back, you know, when I was a kid 20 years ago. So we had, I think it was called Sylvie, this kind of like face on the computer that we could ask like typing questions and it would respond to the questions. And she wasn't great, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Take home message, not great. To, today I learned that I could um, dictate text into Word, that it's just a feature of it. And then I tried it and like half of the time the punctuation was actually accurate and the other half of the time was like spell out period and colon and so on. Um, I I use a um, kind of closed caption thing for our Instagram videos, which like here's what I'm saying and then automatically captions that. And it's, it's almost perfect every time. It can't get plants and pipettes, which is a slight problem, and it also can't get yarm. So every time I have the word yarm, it puts your arm in <laughs> its place, which I find like slightly delightful, but also kind of irritating. Yeah, but I think I had one tool that was also not dealing with Tegan. I can't remember what it replaced it with, though. But yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm not really saying my own name very often. <laughs> I'm, I'm often talking about, you know, bitching about you behind your back. And, yeah, that's why I yeah. never um, actually watch our Insta stories. But <laughs> it just hurts Guys, me too much. Guys, go watch our Insta stories. Um, yeah, how how are you doing? What have you been up to? Speaking of complaining, I have a short complaint to make. Um, Yoram's already heard this rant, so it's really for all of you out there clapping in the audience. Um, <laughs> you can stop clapping by now. You can stop. Um, you did really well. That was like two or three minutes worth of clapping. Really drowned out our talking, so double points for you. Um, yeah, so yesterday I was trying to finally get some stuff organized, like some official stuff with... UK like tax things and I called the number that I had to call and I went through the kind of standard date of birth name give us all your details so we can you know submit the official forms and then this person on the phone asked me what's your title and I said doctor doctor is my title and the person was kind of like tee hee hee that's cute but that's not an option what's your title? Like, you can't be a doctor. And I was like, okay, I'm a Ms. Like, M-S. Like, Ms. M-S. And he was like, but have you been married? Are you divorced? And I was like, no, that's, no. He's like, oh, so you're a Miss. And 
Like, this just makes me so mad that I have to be a miss. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not so much the fact that I can't be a doctor because I understand that. But why the shit do I, as a woman, have to have, like, my title telling you about my marital status? I bet you they're not doing that for the men. Like, if they're doing it for the men, I would be slightly more okay with this. I would still be annoyed because Miss is just utter crap. Um, but my options are to be a Miss, a Mrs. or a Ms. Ms. for me always meant it's none of your business, like, neutral. But apparently here has to be... Anyway. I bet you felt I quite misunderstood now- there. Ha, 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 ha. Sorry. Sorry, least constructive le- <laughs> comment I could have made. I didn't. I didn't complain to the person on the phone because they'd already had to deal with my ridiculously long surname, and my surname is like one surname, but it's double-barreled. So there's like two parts with a hyphen in between, and that could not be communicated. And the person was like, "No, we don't have hyphens." And I was like, "Okay." And they're like, "Well, I can put a space there." I was like, "Whoa, it's not really two names. Like it's it is like it's a surname. So if you put the space there." I know how this ends up. We Nobody can ever find me in the system because I tell them my surname and they get confused because they look for the wrong thing. Anyway, the person on the phone already dealt with that, so I didn't push the doctor thing. But I just, <laughs> I want us to all make it a thing now that if a man tells you their name is Mr. Something, you say, are they, are you married? And if they say no, you say, no, well, then you're not a Mr. You're a master. <laughs> Please refer to yourself as Master Yoram from now on. I mean, Yoram is married, so he can keep Mr. I would be happy to be a master. I think master sounds nicer than mister. I mean, I'm also a master, as it turns out. I've done my masters. When I finished my masters, I became a master. I could be master, I could be doctor, or I could be miss. I just do not see why I have to be miss. It is ridiculous. Like, I am not a 12-year-old. I have not been miss since I went through puberty. That was my... I finished with miss, and I was like, that's it, I'm a miss now. I can still not hear the difference between the two things that you want to be and that you don't want to be. Is it miss and miss? Ms. Ms. It's like M-S. Yeah. And how is that pronounced when you would like... It's more of a buzzing sound. Okay. Okay. I know in Germany when you have like the... I thought the it was like sounds. Mrs. and Miss or something. But well, there's also Mrs., right? Okay, so there's also... Miss, Ms. and Missers. Okay. Okay. That, I, I thought I was just way... It went way above my head in terms of understanding and... A quick interruption here. This is Joram from the editing table. Um, I listened back to this and actually asked Tegan again because I still did not fully understand what's going on. And for those of you who might feel the same way, here is a quick explanation, quick rundown of what's going on here because all of the different titles, they sound to me the same. Um, So what's happening is that Tegan wants to apply to a thing and they want her to be an M-I-S-S, a miss, um, because she's not married and the old traditional way means if you're not married, you are a miss, uh, M-I-S-S. But what she wants to be is a miss, an M-S, which is a um, woman of or like a, a title that doesn't declare anything about the marital status of somebody. So instead of being a miss, she wants to be a miss. And that doesn't um, work because miss is traditionally only for divorced uh, women. So M-S only for di- divorced women. Um yeah, I also learned something here. Uh, I will admit that it took me quite a while until I fully understood what was going on. Um, but yeah, I hope I could shed some light on this for all of you. So back to Tegan. 
I mean, I I know I know it seems that I probably care too much about this, but it's just the fact that no, like no, I think I don't want that my like if if they ask me what's your marital status and then they said are you married, single, or or divorced, or I don't know, widowed or dead or whatever the options are, fine, yes, then, but like. I don't want that that's that's part of my name that the the title that it's attached to my name is like by the way man she's single like that's creepy that it's automatically shown to anyone who sees my name that I'm not attached to somebody or divorced like yeah no yeah. no britain do better yeah please do yeah anyway shall we do the paper let's let's do the paper um let's talk a little bit about plant science plant the paper i picked today is called why is c4 photosynthesis so rare in trees um mm -hmm. it's a paper by sophie young lauren sack margaret sporkula and uh, marjorie lundgren and published in the journal of experimental botany and yeah i picked it because um i thought it was a very intriguing question uh, that they asked in the title already um because trees for us plant biologists, um, trees play a very small role in the organisms that we study because they are just so slow growing that it's very impractical to do any sort of mm -hmm. classical studies on them because we rely on going through several generations very fast where if you think about arabidopsis every six to eight weeks you have a next generation and tobacco between like th three to six months but within a phd time you can <laughs> go through several uh, a couple of generations, generations at least. and and cross them and do all kinds of classical experiments and with trees you can't and therefore at least for me trees played a very minor role in all of the things that i read about plants and yes, so that's true. that sounded immediately interesting to me Oh. I think there's there's a kind of model tree species, which is like a pine species. But even then, often they grow it until it's a tiny little sapling. So like a year still, still a lot of time um, and then harvest it at that stage because yeah, whew, otherwise exhausting. Yeah. Um, and I think poplar as well is one of those that you can have sometimes mm -hmm. in tissue culture. And then you can do a little bit quick experiments, but you can't really go through seed setting and crossing. And It's also very hard to justify that what you're doing in a small you know sterile conditions like with a gel and and growing a plant in a box is representative of the big tree whereas we can kind of trick ourselves with the rabbit ops like yeah it's in a box but at least it looks like a, the same sort of plant yeah. kind of somehow like sure it's the same <laughs> yeah. um so yeah that's how this paper got my attention and it deals with um a second interesting as aspect and that's uh, c4 photosynthesis i have to learn how to say this word photosynthesis um, now would be a good time to point out that Yoram and I both are not very good at TH sounds. And with Yoram, at least he can blame the German language, which doesn't have TH sounds. I just have a speech impediment. Um, <laughs> um, C4 photosynthesis. I'm just going to call it C4 now. Um, yeah, it deals I with think, C4. Yeah, so um, before we talk about C4 photosynthesis, I think we have to talk about what C3 photosynthesis is. And then to do that, we have to kind of just do a really quick overview of photosynthesis generally as a recap. I promise we'll go super quick and at some point maybe one of us will sing if that's <laughs> it's inspiring. probably inevitable. It's almost definitely going to be Yarm. Um, <laughs> Okie dokie, let's go. 
<laughs> so, so photosynthesis, Yarum. Yeah, it's basically capturing light. And um, these are called the light reactions. It's light hits specific um, enzymes or enzyme complexes. They're called photosystems. They take the light and they transfer the light energy into chemical energy by moving electrons around. Although I think by this time it's still sort of biophysical energy and in the end it will be transferred into chemical energy. Um, and what they're making in the process um, is creating the the energy to, to make ATP um, with an enzyme called ATP synthase. And this is sort of the energy currency in the cell. And they're also making another resource that's called NADPH, which is another molecule um, that's uh, involved in many, many different metabolic reactions. And therefore, it's very important to be replenished. And both of these things, ATP and NADPH, are replenished in photosynthesis. Yeah, so those light reactions, they make these molecular currencies, the ATP and the NADPH. And then those currencies are basically used to power the second part of photosynthesis, which is the dark reactions. I mean, it's actually the light independent reactions, but I find them more boring than the light reactions. So we're going to go with dark reactions. I think it's much more cooler. It's like from Star Wars. Like the dark, the dark side of the reactions. Okay, so light reactions make a ton of ATP, NADPH. These are then used by the dark reactions to basically convert that carbon dioxide, which is an inorganic carbon, which it can't be eaten by us lazy mammals. Um, so it has to be converted into organic carbon, something like a sugar, by the plant. And that is what happens in the dark reactions. So to do that, um, the plants have a very specific enzyme that I think that we talked about many times. Uh, it's called Rubisco. And Rubisco is the enzyme that actually fixes the carbon. It takes the carbon dioxide and attaches it to a molecule that's called uh, RubyP, which has five carbon atoms in its structure. And then carbon dioxide is added to it. Um, and that creates then two molecules um, that each have three carbon atoms in their structure. It's sort of adds it to it and that makes it split apart into two molecules and then you have two times three which um, is then six carbons. So the thing that's important here is that the total number of carbons we have is the same. We had five carbons in the ruby P and we had one in the carbon dioxide but now we have three and three it still adds up to six but as a three and three point all of those carbons are now organic carbons, which can then be used in organic systems like plants, but also animals and everybody else. So that's really important. And because the Rubisco makes this first step, which involves making these three carbon molecules, two of them, but they've got three carbons each, we call this kind of photosynthesis C3 photosynthesis, carbon three, three carbon photosynthesis. And this is sort of the original way, the um, normal way or the way you found it, first of all, in the textbooks, which I think are pretty much defining, and then also in the plants. Um, uh, about 85% of plant species do it this way, um, and that's a lot of our common crops like wheat, rice, barley, um, most trees, um, grasses, spinach, cotton, um, things like Arabidopsis. So if you point at a plant and you have to point out if it's C C3 or C4, chances are it is C3, although there are some th guys that do something that's called C4 photosynthesis. And it probably depends on the environment you're in. Anyway, we'll yeah, get to that later. Yeah. If you're standing in so, the middle of a cornfield, don't don't follow my advice. <laughs> so what about C4? Um, as Yoram said, most plants are C3, but some of them have 
evolved, developed, become a different type of plant, which is now a C4 photosynthesizing plant. And the reason they've done this is because Rubisco, despite being an amazing enzyme that can take a five carbon organic compound, a one carbon inorganic carbon dioxide, smash them together and make two, three carbon organic compounds. I almost said that all in one spot. Rubisco (laughs) is still a little bit terrible. And the reason it's terrible is? It's photorespiration. It's a process that I think might have come up in the past as well already. It's a process where instead of using carbon dioxide, Rubisco is using another molecule that we find quite often in the atmosphere, and that is oxygen. And oxygen doesn't have a carbon atom uh, attached to it, and therefore it can't make the two, three carbon compounds. Uh, And instead, it breaks apart then in a three carbon compound and a two carbon compound that is toxic to the cell. And that Mm -hmm. has to be cleaned up, and this cleanup process is called photorespiration. Yeah, so basically, carbon. Uh, sorry, Rubisco should always see carbon dioxide, but about one in every four times on average, it accidentally takes up oxygen, does that photorespiration, makes poisonous things which have to be detoxified and waste a whole lot of energy for everyone. And therefore, there was a certain selection pressure to um, for plants to avoid this um process that loses energy because the photorespiration requires energy so the plant doesn't poison itself through the process and this selection pressure leads to the evolution of the c4 process where instead of um where the main idea is that carbon dioxide is concentrated around rubisco Yeah, so basically the plants or the algae, which also do kind of similar things, they want to prevent Rubisco from getting access to any oxygen. So they shove Rubisco far away from the edges of the leaf. They put it deep into the plant cells, away from the air holes that let in the um, oxygen, which can be taken by the Rubisco, and basically hide it away. The problem is, of course, if they hide this Rubisco away in these central cells, which are called bundle sheath cells, The Rubisco can't get oxygen, but it also doesn't get to have any access to CO2. So what the plants have to do is they take up the CO2 in these cells near the air holes, near the stomata. And then at this point, there's no Rubisco in those cells. They take up CO2. They turn that CO2 into a molecule that can be easily passed through different cells. That molecule is often something called malate. And then they pass the malate through the cells to where the Rubisco is. At the point of the Rubisco, the malate is turned back into CO2, and then Rubisco has a ton of CO2, but no oxygen. And the, the, this molecule, malate, is made out of four carbon um, atoms in its structure. And that's why it's called a C4 plant, um, because the first, um, the first molecule that is um, sort of after CO2 has been bound to something, the first molecule that it happens to is malate and that is uh, four carbon as opposed to the three carbon compound we find in the C3 photosynthesis. And um, this happened a couple of times and this evolution, and we see that now in plants like corn, sugarcane, millet, sorghum, pineapple, daisies, and cabbage, which have all evolved to have this different type of photosynthesis so um, that they have more carbon concentrated about Rubisco and therefore less photorespiration. By the way, um, we've kind of done a quick overview here, but we've also got details um, on the blog which explain it a little bit more clearly and with, you know, 
a bit more scientific precision, I would say, as well. So we'll put the link to those articles in the show notes as well if you want to read more about this C3 and C4. Um, in the end, C4 can be a lot more efficient when it's hot and dry or when there's not so much carbon dioxide, more oxygen. Um, but it also has some downsides. So to actually have this C4 whole setup working, you need to have a certain leaf architecture. You need a place to put the rubisco away from the other cells that are not having rubisco. Um, you need some like biochemical changes, gene expression changes. So it is costly in other ways. But generally speaking, we think of C4 plants as dealing better with hot and dry conditions, which of course has a lot of... Uh, value now when we think of um, the climate crisis so and when we think then about crops and the climate crisis and so on we might wonder can't we just make all plants c4 if it's the most more efficient uh, approach and researchers have tried to do this for for like i think since the discovery in the 50s of the c4 plants um, mm -hmm. people were thinking about how can we do this um sort of in plant breeding how can we make weed c4 so that weed has also and uh, deals better with uh, heat stress and um, dry conditions um, but so far they couldn't do this but um, what they found in the sort of in the process is that there are actually um, several species that are intermediates between c3 and c4 they're sort of on an evolutionary scale they're somewhere in between in between in a couple thousand years they might end up at being c4 if the selection pressure persists um, but right now they have sort of the, the setup to do a little bit of both um, and they are very useful to study this um And what they found, so, hmm? Hmm? yeah, okay. what they found in these these transitional plants that is that it's actually down to a couple of things that need to happen for this transition to take to take place. Um, one of the yeah things that we touched already is that you have to have a different um, distribution of your photosynthetic machinery within the leaf. So you have in a leaf you have a couple of cell types, and the most important ones that we talk about today is the mesophyll cells. That sort of the This, the main cells that you find in the leaf, sort of the, the tissue that is just under the leaf um, epidermis. And then you have the bundle sheet cells that we talked about. And then we have the vascular tissue that's attached to them where the sugars go through, um, sort of the, the pipelines in the leaf. And you have to reorganize the whole process in a way that Rubisco um, goes from the mesophyll cells where it sits in C4, C3 plants to the bundle sheet cells where it sits in C4 plants. And that's one of the first things or one of the main things that has to happen in the process. So there's a lot of like quite difficult things. I mean, structurally, like in, in all different ways that have to occur to get from C3 to C4. But despite that, it has happened many times independently in evolution. I think the current count is over 60 or maybe even over 70 times. C3 plants have evolved to have these C4 pathways and structures. Yeah. But one of the weird mysteries out there is that it basically never happened in trees. So, so far, as far as we know, it's only happened in one group of trees, which are the euphorbs, euphorbia. And this group, um, I think it's called a genus, right? To be correct in terms of in the, in the terminology. Euphorbia 
Um, the species in, in this genus, they span from the semi-deserts in East Africa to the rainforests in the Pacific Islands and also from many different sort of types of plants. They can be herb, uh, sort of herbaceous, which means they, they look like little uh, herbs. They can be um, sort of uh, succulents and they can span up to trees um, that, up, that are up to 30 meters high. Um, so a pretty wide range. And some of these species within that uh, group, within that genus, they actually ev evolved to see for photosynthesis. And this is something that I do want to comment because I don't have very much botanical knowledge, but when I heard about euphorbia, I thought, that's not a freaking tree. <laughs> um, is I associate with the succulent and also with like poins poinsettia, this, this Christmas um, <laughs> bright red plant that is a euphorbia. So to see them as trees, it's... A little bit suspicious. Um, and then in the in the paper that we're talking about, they did have a kind of table showing all of the different euphorbias in their range of forms from kind of bushes to shrubs to trees. And some of them, I think, like I Google imaged it, they do look quite convincingly trees. But my feeling is that euphorbias are not meant to be trees and that's something i want to discuss at the end of this <laughs> yeah yeah um a lot of them are more in the range of like shrubs and um sort of semi-high um plants and the other thing i want to mention before we move on is that apparently the common name for euphorbia the genus is spurges Spurge. like somebody has come up with spurge and i love them for that i've never heard spurges before but <laughs> you when somebody's like hey do you like my nice poinsettia plant at Christmas be like yeah that's a cool spurge <laughs> well spurged man like you've done well the cool okay, thing sorry. about spurges or euphobia is that they are one of or I think the only known genus that contains c3 plants c4 plants and transition plants c3 to c4 and on top of that there's also some that use the crassolacean acid metabolism which is called a cam metabolism which is something that we don't talk today about in detail but it's another way of concentrating carbon around rubisco so that um it does less photorespiration it's just uh it's a different strategy to to achieve that and so in this genus you find all of these sort of different ways of doing photosynthesis which makes it a very interesting genus to study if you want to compare them and figure out how one becomes the other in an in a evolutionary scale okay so back to the question of why has c4 not really happened in trees except for this like one genus and just maybe two or three convincing tree-like species within that quite large genus. And the first, the first reason that has come up is environmental factors linked to the different energy efficiencies of C3 and C4. So we said that C4 can have some advantages, but the reality is that it has a lower maximum quantum yield, which basically means that it gets less bang for its buck as far as light goes, simply because to be C4, you have to put a lot of energy into building all those specialized structures and having all those specialized enzymes to do the C4 processes. So at like ambient temperatures, generally C3 plants can actually outcompete C4. They can grow fast just because they're better at photosynthesizing generally. And one example I've seen in the paper is that they looked at a certain, um, I think it's a grass species that's found in like the desert, coastal regions and grasslands. And they found that C3 and C4 um, species 
basically work the same at 30 degrees Celsius. If you go higher than that, the C4 is, is doing better because it's a winner at, at hot and dry temperatures. But lower than that, the C3 is the winner. Although I should mention that that was done in the 70s, back when CO2 was only 320 parts per million. And now we're up to, what, 450? What's the current? I don't know what the exact number is, but yeah, we're somewhere between 400 and 450 right now. Yeah, so one argument is that it actually isn't as good for C4 plants to live in areas that are cool and moist um, because C3 plants can just grow faster than them. On top of that, if it's shady, that whole thing that C4 plants have to do where they change their carbon dioxide into the malate form and then move it around, that whole transforming and shuttling thing can actually get leaky in the shade. So they start to lose even basically more energy or more like carbon equivalents because of this leakiness. And the thing about cool, moist and shady habitats well, that's where trees actually like to hang out and like to develop. So the environmental argument is that trees aren't C4 because the environments that trees like are the environments when C4 plants are generally outcompeted by C3 plants. What I liked about that is um, not only that it's very like visual, but they also talk about um, how how this genus, I mean, this like if we look at this as an explanation for why trees in general don't have C4. Um, it still leaves us with the question, so why do these like weird trees from the Euphorbia genus do have C4? I mean, they're also mm-hmm. trees. Like, they must have hung around in a, in a forest. But I mean, yeah. they, their answer is that they that in Euphorbia, a lot of the C4 trees, they sort of radiate out from Hawaii. And mm-hmm. um, they sort of arrived on these uh, uh, Hawaiian islands as shrubs on an and i'm saying that sort of as an evolutionary time scale here like Mm -hmm. they arrived before they evolved into trees and um because shrubs are have advantages in sort of traveling a larger distances or having a larger seed dispersal um and they arrived on the island and there weren't any large trees that would shade them so they could sort of grow at the height of the canopy and didn't have the problem with being sort of in the undergrowth of the forests and then they they would evolve c4 because they they would see high temperatures there um i'm simplifying here sort of the selection (laughs) pressure and all the evolutionary processes that were going on but they had the chance to evolve c4 and then also evolve into trees and then once they did that on these islands then they then they were dispersed again and therefore reached uh, all the other habitats yeah and that was kind of my my question about this genus in general if you look at the kind of tree shrubby things a lot of them do look quite shrub like and even the trees they look like shrubs that have decided to grow a bit more than usual so to me that argument makes a lot of sense that they were shrubs that became c4 and then they kind of chose to be trees and i'm not really that's something that i didn't really understand from the paper at which stages these different transitions happen like when does a shrub become a tree and when did these shrubs become trees relative to when they made that switch from c3 through c3 for transition to c4 yeah and i think many of these questions are hard to answer and the paper that we're looking at is also um, a review paper and they integrated knowledge that was um, collected over uh, a couple of decades yeah back to the 70s and Mm -hmm. um, i think there hasn't there hasn't been too much sort of 
um, systematic study of these trees. There were people over several decades um, interested from time to time in these trees and then moving on to other topics again. And therefore, it's very hard to answer these questions um, with the knowledge that we have. So... It might be also, as Yara mentioned, that not many people are that eager to experiment on trees. So yeah. <laughs> nobody really followed up why the trees were C4. They were busy looking at, like, well, the, the easy, quick-growing plants, how they became C4. Yeah. But on top of sort of these um, energetic or environmental factors um, that play a role, there's also um, evolutionary factors or that to me they um, link much more to sort of the structure of, um, of the plants. And... Um, the something that uh, we mentioned before is this um, for in order for the transition happening from C3 to C4 you need a couple of structural things in your um, setup of your leaves you need to have the rubisco move from the mesophyll cells to the bundle sheet cells so to from one cell type to another but That's at the same time near the air holes into the center like those hidden yeah. away cells and the bundle sheet cells they sit around the vasculature so around the pipelines that um, run the sugars that are made in the leaves into the stem and into the roots where they're stored um, and well so one thing is that the rubisco has to move there, but at the same time, there has to be very efficient connections between these two cell types so that the malate that is made when the CO2 is fixed into this first C4 carbon compound can then be shuttled to the bundle sheet cells. Um, so these two things pretty much have to happen for C4 to take place. And these two things go contrary to what you usually find in trees. Um, trees, if you imagine them that they have this large canopy, they... Um, gather a lot of sunlight and therefore make a lot of sugars and transport them to the trunk. So you have these massive flows of sugars from the leaves through, through the leaf veins into the trunk where it's stored. And because this is, um, they have such a high demand for um, molecules, sugar molecules to be moved, um, for them it's energetically more efficient to have a passive transport system going on. Um, and they so a lot of trees or most of trees evolved a passive system where the sugars are loaded from the meso from the bundle sheet cells into the vasculature into the veins into the pipelines of the sugars um, but a passive system means that there is not a big selection which molecules get loaded into the stream and which molecules are retained in the cells and therefore if suddenly all of this malate is pushed into the bundle sheet cells for photosynthesis um, and there's a passive system loading everything that's in the cell into the into the veins, then the malate is also loaded into the veins and sort of driven away from where it's needed for photosynthesis, reducing its efficiency. So that doesn't really mm. help. Um, and so basically you're saying the act of being a tree is counteractive yeah. of the act of moving your malate around in a very organized way. Yeah. And then you also have another effect that's very strong in trees, that's transpiration. So it's sort of the reverse movement of water from the roots to the leaves. And um, because especially tall trees, they sort of need a high pressure of water to drive all of the nutrients from the roots up into the canopy where it's needed in the leaves. Um, you sort of have this high pressure coming through these other pipelines into the leaves and they go against sort of the flow that you need for the malate. The malate wants to mm -hmm. go from the mesophyll into the bundle sheet cells, but you have this intense water pressure going in the opposite direction from the veins into the mesophyll where they yeah. then go through the stomata to evaporate to create transpiration. That it's also very hard to then push malate molecules against this pressure. 
Um, Imagining like a tidal wave just like washing the mallet back outwards towards the, the yeah. stomata, towards the outside of the leaves. Yeah. So you have these two two problems, these two main problems um, that make it just much less efficient to run this C4 photosynthesis that relies on the transition of malate from mesophyll to bundle sheet cells. And um, that's um, their explanation, a paper, why trees usually um, are less likely or don't have C4 photosynthesis. And they also mentioned that it's unknown right now why uh, euphobia doesn't care about these problems. Like, how did well, it create <laughs> solutions for it? How did it yeah. evolve in a way that it can transport malate despite having this uh, water pressure from the transpiration, despite having um, the passive loading of the sugars into the pipelines? Um, so, yeah, they, they say that that requires more studies and um, it's a very peculiar case uh, for euphobia. Which is up on the answer in science. We're not, we're not really sure why this is happening. It's somehow <laughs> managing to happen. It doesn't make any sense based on what we know. Yeah. I wonder if, um, because the euphorbs to me, I think of a succulent. So I wonder if these trees are just quite slow growing and they're, they don't have to have as much um, of a push from the roots because they're not developing at such a fast rate. You know, they store water very efficiently. They don't, they don't transpire very much. I wonder if that's part of the, yeah. the, the answer, but... Yeah, it's it's just a random guess, or random. <laughs> yeah, it could, it, here's my two cents of why it's happening. I have no idea. I don't even know what this <laughs> plant looks like properly. Um, yeah, one other fact that I thought was interesting from the paper is that they said that it's not actually there's there's no other trees out there that look like they might become C4. So there's no there's no more of these C3 C4 intermediates, which might give a clue as to how the tree moves through these difficult processes that Yaram and I mentioned to become a C4. So that also is, is somehow limiting because it means we can't use these trees as a kind of study guide. Um, and also to me, it's, it suggests very strongly that euphorbia is just a bit of a mistake. Like it's was supposed to be a shrub and accidentally <laughs> tree. I mean, the trees are six meters tall. They're not like tiny puny trees, but I feel like it just accidentally became a tree <laughs> yeah i think i see it in a way that um it sounds to me like you have a very large venn diagram of overlapping conditions and only at the very center of these conditions you can get um c4 in trees and trees have some additional sort of restrictions um, that make it harder to evolve C4 photosynthesis that's why you found it 70 times in other non-tree plants but only once in trees um, because only once all of these conditions were right um, at a specific time um, during during earth um, sort of the earth history mm. and um, combined with like the very like specific geography of hawaii and um, so that might just be one of these things of, of probabilities right you you stack all of these probabilities that something that all of these things come together in a place and you end up with having such a low probability that it just happening once is, yeah, means it will probably not happen again. I have something I would like to say. A while back, we came up with the idea of having the joke PhD segment, where Yama and I propose absolutely ridiculous PhD projects that could never be done within a PhD. I am now going to propose 
changing a C3 euphorbia species into a C4 tree. So <laughs> that's a project for a PhD. If any PhD is willing to do that, full funding will be required by somebody who is not us. <laughs> yeah, just starting with a succulent and three years later having a 30 meter tall tree that's a C4. Imagine you just hand them a poinsettia and this like, Christmas plant and you're like, off you go, kid. And by the way, that sap is poisonous. Don't get it on your fingers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that might explain why there is still a call for research at the end of the paper instead of a um, complete conclusion uh, and with a complete explanation of everything that we observed there. <laughs> um, so that paper was called dun, 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 Why is C4 Photosynthesis So Rare in Trees? It's by Young et al. and it came out in the Journal of Experimental Botany in August this year. Uh, Yoram, you didn't sing yet. I didn't sing yet. Dun, 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 I, uh, to be honest, I forgot the exact words and everything. I, I remember... Um, Rubies go every now and then. You take some ruby pee and mix it in with CO2. Rubies go every now and then. Some oxygen can jump in and that leads to photorespiration. <laughs> Rubis go and then we stop because I cannot <laughs> hit any of those notes I haven't hit any of the notes yet um, once upon a time Yarm and I made a very bad song about Rubisco and photorespiration to the tune of Turn Around Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler for our dear dear friend who was studying Rubisco yeah and Personally, for me, I was going to say I'll never forget the words of that song. Apparently, Yoram has already moved on to a different stage of his life. But um, thankfully, luckily to all of you public, that will never be released into the <laughs> wild. Yeah, it's, that's, that's our gift to you, um, sparing you from any more of our singing. But I do think that um, we've written out some of the lyrics on one of the posts about the C3 to C4 transition on the blog. So we will put the links to that in the show notes. And maybe you guys can all guess what the next verse is. <laughs> yes. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun So many Twitter notifications. Next time we do an unpopular post. <laughs> You're such a jerk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to start? I want to start with a very quick thing, which is a post that a, a sorry, a quote that a friend shared with me. It was, I think, tweeted by Martha Munoz at Marmunos. Um, and the tweet is about a quote from somebody else from a paper from the 1980s. And the quote goes, it's a footnote. It says, a protein is not like a solid house into which the visitor, the ligand, enters by opening doors without changing the structures. Rather, it is like a tent into which a cow strays. So I think we all kind of learned this idea of proteins interacting, like enzyme proteins interacting with the molecule in a kind of key and lock fashion where, you know, the lock is solid, the key is solid and something has to, the, the key has to fit into the lock. But this is kind of saying, no, it's, it's not a key and a lock. It's not, you know, somebody entering a house. It's a cow going into a tent and the, the tent, the enzyme has to adapt itself around the shape of the cow that stumbles in there <laughs> which i think fits nicely with what we're saying because it's also explaining how rubisco can mistake oxygen for co2 and yeah. not see that one of them is oxygen o2 and one of them has whole freaking carbon in there yeah yeah enzymes are not solid massive structures they are wobbling around constantly and they're just more sort of energetically stable and preferred in some 
And they're kind of confirmations. stupid. Yeah, yeah, enzymes are stupid. Um, I have something, uh, it's called The Sound of Forests. It's a very cool um, project that is uh, related to a festival that's called something the Timber Festival. Yeah, the Timber Festival. Um, and they made an interactive map with different sounds of forests uh, around the world. And I want to play two of them to you and you have to guess where they are. Um, because I know that you've memorized all forest <laughs> sounds in the world when in your free time instead of doing your mm. lab work, um, pretty much. So I not actually it. free time, pay time by your ex-boss. Um, okay, at least we're blaming the ex-boss and not the current boss so I don't get fired. That's, that's nice. <laughs> no, no, I, you, you stopped as soon as you had a real job. You stopped memorizing <laughs> forest sounds. Um, but just to go back to the old days, uh, where is this sound from? And I hope it's not too loud. It's too soft, I can't hear it. Okay. Is it better? Okay, I want to hear a different one so that I can then compare the two. Okay, so this was the, uh, the forest number one and now forest number two. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, number three. I have two sounds, so um, I can play you the first one again if you want to have number three. Okay, forest number one was Australia and forest number two is a trick forest. It's actually the shower. <laughs> I think it was raining in the recording of number two. Um, okay, forest number two was not in Australia because it doesn't rain in Australia. Yeah, um, you're right. It was Australia. Do you want to yeah. say, uh, I mean... In a German-Australian podcast, Australia. how likely it is that I I'm said sure. Australia because I know Joram doesn't have much imagination and chose the Australian one. It would also be very like unfunny if I would <laughs> say, like, yeah, this was actually in Congo. How do you not know what Congo sounds like, Keegan? <laughs> Suck it. Um, yeah, do you want to guess where in Australia it was? Can you play it again? Sounds like Darwin, eh? Uh, Northern Territory. Um, no. Sounds weird, Northern Territory. No, not, it's not Northern. It's going to be Perth, isn't it? No, no, it's not Perth. Uh, there's, unfortunately, there's no recording from Perth. And then it's in, in Sydney. Uh, I, I think I took the sound from Sydney because I think the Brisbane sound was quite annoying. Yeah, I took the one from the Lackland <laughs> Reserve. Okay. The um, Brisbane was... So Sydney. Like, so I've been up in the north, like in, in Brisbane and in Darwin, and it's much more tropical. So it's really like the air is just so loud. There's constantly bugs and like like crickets and it's hot and humid. And there's constantly a background sound of things moving and breathing and, and squirming in the soil. And like you can feel life and growth all the time, which I mean, Yoram, it would be your nightmare. Like yeah. you would just not be okay with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, the second sound was from Berlin, um, from not wait, not uh, too far from where I live, from the Tegel um, forest. Uh, it's one of the few recordings that I have from Germany, uh, and the only one from Berlin. Um, yeah, but this map is—it's quite fun to go around. Uh, it actually has quite a lot of places in the UK. I should have taken one from London and seen if you know, I can hear you on that. Um, <laughs> 
And just me screaming. <laughs> it's very likely, I guess. It's, I think it's all of them are around one what minute long. What do you long. mean I can't be a doctor? <laughs> Why would I be a miss? I'm 31 years old, young man. What bird is that? Um, That's who I've become. <laughs> Uh, they are all public domain, all of the recordings, so they actually invite people to use them for remixes, for music, for sound installations, for whatever you can imagine. So it's quite fun to click around the world and just listen to the way very different forests sound. Um, and then if you have any talent for sound stuff, maybe you find inspiration and uh, use that in music or installations or anything else. Yeah, and Yoram's life is not that busy right now. So the first 10 people who call in can get Yoram to remix one of the forests to their favorite pop song. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I have no skills in that area. So like, okay, I can overlay <laughs> the two things. And then you have like birds and Katy Perry. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of birds, great segue. Um, there's a, ooh, what do you call it? <laughs> An article is the word I was looking for. That's an awkward one to forget. An article by Omland and colleagues on the conversation, on the UK conversation. And it's called, Women have disrupted research on birdsong and their findings show how diversity can improve all fields of science. And I would really recommend this. I just had a quick read of it before we started the podcast. But basically, birds... The, the standard thing that people always thought about birds is that male birds sing and male birds sing to attract females and female birds, they basically just shut up and listen because yeah. that's what female birds like to do. They like to listen to men sing at them. <laughs> and when female birds did sing, somebody would point at that female bird, scientifically speaking, and say, you are rare and or abnormal, you female bird, because female birds don't usually sing. Um, Anyway, over the past 20 years or so, research has actually shown that both males and female birds of many, many bird species which are present in the tropics, both genders sing. Both of them love to sing. And all of this leads to the fact that basically, ancestrally speaking, all birds sing. And in some bird species, the females have stopped singing. <laughs> Probably because they couldn't get a word in edgewise. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> they just gave um, up. Yeah, so as it turns out, female birdsong is, is really widespread. And the, the people who wrote the conversation article recently published a scientific study where they looked at the last 20 years of research and they found that a lot of those studies which mentioned female bird singing, they happened to have female authors. <laughs> like the scientists who published those uh, studies, some of them at least were female. <laughs> so they looked into the idea that maybe... The reason people thought that only male birds sing was because only male scientists were looking at the birds and the male scientists just naturally kind of assumed that only male birds sung. And it was only when female scientists came in that they were like, <laughs> hey guys, look, this female is also freaking singing. Let's maybe write about this. And the males were like, no, 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 no. Everybody <laughs> knows male birds only sing. And the women were like, yeah, okay, but she won't shut up over here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they've actually now done a study and they've basically shown that, that the increasing... Um, representation of female bird singing can be linked to the increasing representation of female scientists. So go and read this article. I really, really encourage it because the point of the article is not really about bird singing. It's about having diversity in the science yeah. and the fact that getting more diversity will give us 
unexpected results. We cannot even predict the glorious things we will find out by increasing the diversity in science. In this case, it's a male-female thing. This is really significant right now because we've just had um, Black Birding Week come like a month or so ago. Um, so there's diversity of races. Geographical diversity is really important. So here they're talking about how in the tropics, female birds mostly sing. We know that we have this huge problem in ecological studies where there's this dominance of research that's happening in Europe and North America. But that's not even where the dominance of species are. The dom like Most species are in tropical regions. So... We're just not paying attention to those species because the countries which have the funding are looking at birds in their own backyard. Yeah. So, yeah, there's this huge take-home message about how important it is to just expand the way we think. And, yeah, it's race, ethnicity, geographic location, and also socioeconomic standing, which really need to be incorporated into the way we do science because – when we do science that is only from the point of view of straight, white, middle-class, European males, we think that female birds can cannot sing, guys. And this is a problem. <laughs> but no. also many, many other really important issues. I mean, it, it just... Yeah. I don't know. It can't be stated enough how ridiculous this is, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and from... Your very important topic to another very important topic that I brought. Um, this is the ghost of hetero's past. Um, and it's a Twitter thread. Sorry, um, I heard hetero's. Het hetero's. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a little fun observation that I quite liked. Um, they, uh, The author of the tweet here um, just compares uh, old maps of um, sort of how land was divided and current aerial photography where uh, many sectors of land were mixed together um, and you can still see from above where the old separation lines were because hedges were planted there um, there were hedgerows usually separating two uh, areas of land from one another and even when the hedgerows were removed you can still see them today because they had a, a long-lasting impact on the soil below and you can still see that now and it's just um, a fun observation to that you can still from uh, aerial photography redraw the old maps of uh, separated lands uh, when they were all collected together and um, the thread ends with a call for the importance of hedges um, in the preservation of of the countryside um, because hedges provide um, or provide many different functions. They they provide shelter for agricultural and wild animals. Um, they uh, bind water. They uh, are a barrier against dust that happens during um, during agriculture. Um, they break down winds so that you don't have less dust in the first place that's that's blown up um, into the air. And so um, hedges are now gaining again a spot in the focus or of um, people trying to preserve natural like not natural is the wrong word here but to to preserve sort of um, diverse ecosystems in areas where agriculture is happening as well um, because i imagine hedges were, or hedgerows were cut down for ease of access to the land um or they, they require some upkeep because if you don't cut them back from time to time, they will just like grow taller and taller and then eventually topple over and break. So they, they require some investment in their upkeep. And that's why many 
in many places they were sort of abandoned um, and maybe just a fence was set up instead and the fence doesn't have the same impact on the ecosystem as a hedgerow. Um, from talking about maps, I have something else that's map-based. So in the last week or so, I've been discussing um, tea. So one of our Facebook friends raised the question of what you can consider tea. So we've discussed this in the past that there's a species, Camellia sinestris, that is the tea species. And anything else, if you have lavender or rose petals or marshmallows or thyme or... Uh, chamomile, like any of these in a hot beverage, that's not really a tea because it doesn't have the species that I would say is is tea, in my opinion. Obviously, this is a little bit subjective. And then I was mentioning in this this commentary on tea that uh, camellia, camellia sinestris, which is tea, is also related to the ornamental camellias that we grow in our garden. They're, they belong to the same genus, in fact. So our Facebook friend was asking, well, can I call that tea if I was going to boil myself a hot cup of ornamental camellia? Can I can I call it a, a tea as well? And we did a poll on Instagram and actually like two thirds of people thought that was okay. But I think some of those people also thought that uh, like dissolving sugar in water was also tea. Um, <laughs> but then a friend told me that actually in Germany, tea is the only word, like there's the word tea and it, it applies to everything. So what I have here is not a scientific debate, but a linguistic debate, which is a problem. And she sent me this article um, in Quartz. Quartz is a kind of economics-based um blog and media platform. I hadn't really heard of it before, but it's by um, Nicole Sonnard, the article, and it's called Tea If By Sea, Chart If By Land, Why the World Only Has Two Words for Tea. And basically she's right. In Across the entire world, we've evolved, we've, we've all sort of taken up tea drinking, but there are really consistently two different words for tea. One is based on Tea, which we use in English and German, and the other is cha or chai, which we're probably all familiar with. So it's kind of this basis. And this is linked to how tea moved around the world, whether it was moved by ship or moved across the land. And there's a, a map associated. Mm. I will encourage you to all go and look at this. But it's quite a nice look at language. And I also want to give a really big shout out to the reporter, Nicol Sonard, because um, the tagline for this is etymology where he put T instead of just the letter T. So, well done, Nickel, for that. I know some people who get really upset if you say chai tea. Because they say, yeah, I heard something about this. It makes no sense. It both means the same thing. You're not saying coffee, coffee. So Yeah, um, actually, I read about this in my um, The Good Immigrant book that I've been reading recently. Um, there was somebody who was like, I think of Indian heritage. I, I could be wrong, but and you're saying, yeah, like why would you call it chai tea? You're just saying tea tea. That's that's kind of ridiculous. But I mean, language evolves, guys. I think that's. No, I, I mean, think, if we're not culturally disrespectful, I think there's room for language to adapt over time. No, I think there's like one correct way of saying things, and it's mine. <laughs> and it's it's a German way. <laughs> yeah, but in English you would call it an in, in infusion, right? Um, just to have said that word, I think infusion. T whenever it's not is the right word, T I S A N E. Maybe I'm not sure how ah. to pronounce that even, okay. or an infusion. Yeah. But I mean, we also have like shops which call themselves tea shops, and they they sell like marshmallows and sprinkles that you put in water. So I'm not really sure. I mean, most tea that you get in Germany is not of the Camilla variety. Like most of the tea that we have is chamomile. That's the thing. I mean, in Germany, you literally cannot buy actual tea tea. Like if yeah. you look for tea, it's it's physically Chai impossible. Tea -tea. 
And also, like, 90% of the teas you can buy in Germany, when you drink it, somebody will say, oh, do you have an X ache? Or, like, do you have heartburn? And you're like, no, I'm just drinking tea. And they're like, no, 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 that's actually not tea. That's a special remedy that will prevent your toenails from growing too quickly or something. And Yeah. It's a whole cultural phenomenon, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I even have teas for pregnancy, and that brings me to my next topic. Pregnancy. Uh, Pregnancy. We have actually a couple of teas for um, during pregnancy and at the end of pregnancy. And for milk production as well, right? Mm. um, Yeah, but uh, um, I just found a fun little thing that I want to mention here that's about pregnancy tests and electronic pregnancy tests. And I'm not going to ask you if you've ever taken an electronic pregnancy test because that's sort of indiscreet. Haven't you heard? I'm a miss. I'm not married and therefore I can't bear offspring. But if you ever taken a pregnancy test you probably in the shop had the option between buying like a regular cheap one or a super accurate precision high quality high definition electronic um, pregnancy test and somebody on twitter um saw these and it's like around a dollar for a regular pregnancy test and around 12 dollars for an electronic pregnancy test and we're like how are they so much better and they opened one up and what I found was that it's just a regular pregnancy test in there and some fancy electronics to read the little colored bar of the pregnancy test and then show on a display pretty much the readout that comes from the bar. So it's it's just extra steps, but with exactly the same sensitivity and the same chemical process. So you're not peeing on an electronic chip that then detects your pregnancy, you're still peeing on the same chromatographic little strip where then some hormone triggers a color reaction. And um, that is then just measured by overcomplicated electronics. And then you throw everything in the garbage. So um, these things are extremely wasteful for resources. Um, And um, yeah, if you are considering using pregnancy tests, don't buy the electronic ones, please. Just get also, the simple ones. They do exactly the same. Also, don't some of them give an output where it's like a smiley face as the like, yay, you're pregnant, yeah. which is maybe not your... Feeling. Like, yeah. feeling. <laughs> if you're... Mm. Okay, it's clear blue, which is maybe specifically for people looking to conceive. Um, but still. And it gives, a, <laughs> gives an empty circle if there's no baby in. Yeah. Yeah, and they okay. all rely just on the simple chromatographic principle of separating a couple of, of um, hormones and uh, having. I think it's like an antibody reaction test. Like if a cert, if you have uh, a pregnancy related hormone in your urine, then that triggers this color reaction by, um, and then you can see the strip, or you can have a lot of electronics around it that see the strip for you and then give you a smiley face. Um, Oh, so I saw an episode of MASH once where you can actually just use a rabbit ovary. So maybe you've got like a rabbit hanging around and you want to do that. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I, I, I just, I can <laughs> just tell you, don't use electronic pregnancy tests. They actually have like a little processor in it, like a little CPU that runs at like four megahertz and so on. They're completely can over-engineered. Can we hack them? I guess they're people not connected try, to anything. People, people try to hack them. And I mean, they are quite slow, but that is not the biggest problem. The problem is that they... Um, the versions that they put in there, they're sort of locked that you can't put other code on there than the one that they are delivered with. 
Um, so I'm going to be honest here. I'm not even sure what that word hack really means. So I, mean, I just this, wanted to this, sound I, cool. I mean, if you say talk about hacking, there's uh, one tweet going around attached to these um, people taking the pregnancy test apart where somebody actually runs a game on a pregnancy test. But to do that, they swapped out the display and they swapped out the processor for another like a minuscule, tiny so processor. So they basically just used the outside of the pregnancy test and put yeah. something else inside it. Exactly. So if you see the image of somebody playing Doom on a pregnancy test they added a couple of electronics to make that possible They're you can't do that you can't do that on a on a off the shelf pregnancy test <laughs> yeah um so my next thing is related to something that i think yarm you and i have both commented on the past so i feel there was a time many years ago where you and your beloved went on a holiday in ireland, ireland. and at one point you were like roaming around the the lonely mountains in the mist and you walked up to some people and you just immediately started talking to them in German yeah. because you could tell from the way they looked, the way they dressed and the way they moved that they were German even before you talked to them. Yes. Yes. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Although they approached, they talked to us in German. Um, we we oh, sort dear. of responded in English and then they immediately shifted to German, but like we had the German uniform, um, we had like the the backpacks and the outdoor shoes and the rain jackets and it was just like textbook German the way we look, but also like the other person. Um, so um, yeah, we immediately then started talking German. So this is something I've actually come across myself recently. Um, in my current job, I'm often looking for references, so for people to review articles or looking for connections. And to do that, I I usually find the name of somebody based on a paper, which often has a link to their affiliations, so where they currently work. And then I use that and I end up like on their homepage to make sure that they still currently are working and, you know, everything's up to date. But when I go to the homepage, oftentimes I'm confronted with a photo of somebody. And I've occasionally had that thing where I've looked at the photo and I've immediately been like, this person is Australian. And it's usually a male, I have to say. I'm, I'm not so good with the Australian females. And it'll be like somebody who's working in the US, in the UK, in China, anywhere else in the world. But I look at that photo, I'm like, I just know that person's China, Australian. And then I scroll down and look at their um, educational background out of curiosity. And they have been Australian. I mean, they've done their, their basic education in Australia. So I assume they're Australian. So sometimes I can recognize from a photograph somebody who is an Australian and I can't tell you what it is about that photograph that makes them Australian I just have that strong feeling this is an Australian and this links to the article I want to bring up today which is from the BBC um, it's under the category of identity it's written by Leo Benedictus and it came out on the 14th of September and it's called the movements that betray who you are and it's this whole discussion about how even without any uniform, so without your German Deuter backpack and your raincoats and your preparation for the end times that you've gone out into <laughs> Ireland with, we can tell how people, where people come from, what their cultural background is based on their facial movements. Mm -hmm. So back in the late 80s even, there was volunteers who were asked to identify emotions on the faces of people who were either Japanese or Japanese Americans. So these are people who are like genotypically like they, their ethnic background is the same, but some of them were raised in the US and some were raised in Japan. And people could tell which ones they were, who were the, the Japanese Japanese and who were the Japanese Americans 
based on looking at these people even when they were dressed in identical uniforms and they weren't really doing ex anything except for showing facial expressions. And um, there's this whole discussion on this and it's, it's in many different ways. Um, apparently, Americans can tell how, who Australians are based on the way they um, smile. So this is a different um, scientific article called Nonverbal Accents and Cultural Stereotypes about Americans and Australians, separated by common language by Marsh et al. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, yeah, the way we smile as Australians is kind of strange. Like Putin, apparently, you can tell that he used to be in the KGB because of the way he holds his arms when he walks. Um, all of these different things which make it easy for people to see like the cultural accent of someone without them ever opening their mouth. Um, and I find it really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and the the kind of downside or the flip side of that is that it means we have to be super aware about how we interact with people because, again, it's this bias that we have there where, you know, you could claim, oh, you know, I'm not having any any favoritism towards this person. I didn't even know he was Australian. But it's possible that you actually did. There was something subconsciously where maybe you felt more familiar with that person. It felt like it was easier to interact with them. And that's because you did at some level recognize them as your culture and that might then lead you to behaving to them towards them in a certain way. So um, some of the other downsides is, for example, it's possible to tell rich people from poor people. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, different things like that, which are obviously, you can also choose who's likely to be more capable based on looking at photographs. So there's some, some non-verbal stimuli that we think shows ability, mm -hmm. even though obviously that's, that's not, that's not a thing that you can see in a photograph, right? You have yeah. no idea about the. So, I don't know. It's a really great article. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, yeah. Please do go and read that. It's it's super cool. That really sounds fascinating. Um, I guess it must come down into this gut feeling of familiarity or strangeness, Absolutely. right? And then and, that's and the you thing. put all of these things on top of that. You just feel familiar and immediately you think competence and and skill when in fact you just have this gut feeling of. Yep. And that's really a problem with our power structures where people in power will keep on promoting people who just feel familiar to them. And that's just going to prevent diversity, which is what we really need to have in science, but also generally, right? Yeah. Um, I have uh, one last fun fact uh, about um, gamers doing something useful for once. And I can say that because I'm a gamer myself. Don't, don't add me. Um, <laughs> add him, add him. <laughs> Wait, add plants and pipettes so it drives up our whatever something, something, yeah, social yeah, media, um, something. Trying to, to stir like a public outcry <laughs> here by... It's just what Yoram does. He tries to troll like Greenpeace and stuff. <laughs> so... Um, Gamers actually help to fight against Corona, or actually the, they help basic research. Um, there's this game called EVE Online. Um, it's a massive multiplayer online, I think, role-play game, but definitely massive multiplayer online <laughs> game where they like fly, around, fl uh, in, uh, fly around in spaceships. It's like incredibly complex. Um, people have pretty much actual jobs in the game, in the virtual world, and they have trade routes and explore um, star systems and whatnot. Um, and the, the, the developers of the game recently int introduced a mechanic in there where they introduced images of flow cytometry 
Um, so this is this uh, that's also called cell sorting. Um, so researchers um, they send individual cells from cell culture through the machine, and then it's sorted um, according to certain parameters, and that okay. creates these clouds of points in your graph, and then you have to manually sort of draw. Um, areas around the cloud sort of um, which points belong into the top cloud and which one belong in the bottom cloud and so on um, and this is a lot of manual work and so they introduced that into the game where then gamers can do this work they get sort of a short introduction how they do that they have an algorithm that scores it and then depending on how well they do it um, they can then get in-game benefits from it they get like a so I don't know whatever cosmetics for, for their, their character yeah, or something costumes exactly. <laughs> or in-game currency or something mm -hmm. that's worthless outside of the game and doesn't create like doesn't cost money to have in the game to add to the game, um, but they're doing actual work for research um, by doing that. Um, so that's been very um, popular now. As uh, there, there have been a couple of articles on this that that gamers actually like playing this sort of mini game within the game to get some minor benefit. And because it's mm -hmm. so many people doing that, it actually helps research. Because then if you have, I don't know, 100 people solving the same image, then just by averaging that, you get a pretty good estimate, like a pretty good um, result that's close to what you actually want to have. And there's also another game um, that's called Borderlands 3 that helps to dissect the microbiome of uh, humans. They uh, Researchers collected a lot of uh, stool samples and um, did genetic, uh, like genome sequencing on all of the less cool. microbiome in there. And then they have all of these gen uh, genomic reads that overlap um, and that have to be mapped to reference genomes. Um, that means just they have, you, get, you, you don't get when you do this sequencing, you don't get one stretch of readout that goes from like the beginning of the genome to the end of the genome. Instead, you get lots of little fragments, um, thousands of fragments for a genome. And then you have to put them in the right order, puzzle them together so that you can actually get in the end the long list of all of the letters that you want to get. And they created a mini game that's a little bit more abstract that also helps to sort of shape the algorithms and, and fix the mistakes that the algorithms make um, that automatically try to assemble these things. And again, the reward is some like in-game currency, some in-game uh, benefit um, that they use. And I, I really like this idea of, of gamification and crowdsourcing mm. while giving something that's valuable to the players without actually having to spend money on it. Like you couldn't. I've heard, everybody I've heard of it being used as for like protein foldings. Yeah. Um, stimulate like for, from from what ten years ago it first yeah. started that people were doing these protein folding games. Just yeah. And again, there was different points of view. So like they, apart from the the sheer mass of people playing the game, they found that the scientists often had this bias of how they thought things should fold based on what they already knew in nature. Whereas the people who didn't have that that knowledge bias, they were creating new shapes, which actually made a lot of sense um, yeah. and turned out to be accurate because yeah. they didn't come in. So it's, again, this diversity argument, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the more different people we have that look from different perspectives at it, um, the more chances we have at actually finding a good solution. Uh, and yeah, so I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, Borderlands 3 is actually on my to-playlist, um, but I don't really have the time now to play games. But um, if I would play, be playing this game, I would definitely play also the mini game for science. And then I could say, like, I'm working, I'm doing science. Um, 
don't add me, don't talk to me, I'm busy. <laughs> so yeah, mm -hmm. that's that. Um, I have one final story, which is also from the BBC, and it's actually from a little bit earlier in this year. It's called How a Plant Saved a Japanese Island um, by Jamie Lafferty. Uh, came out in January 2020. And it's basically about this uh, small island in Japan. I think there's only 55 people there who live there now. And they eat cycads. And cycads are basically these big kind of tree fern looking um, plants, which you might be familiar with from Jurassic Park. They're basically the plants that were around with the dinosaurs. So that age has even been called the age of the cycads because they were just everywhere. Um, and then at one stage... Plants worked out how to make flowers and basically were like, haha, we're going to take over now. Um, before that, there were cycads. So the thing about cycads is that they have internal starch storages, um, which many plants do. It's, it's a way of keeping um, sort of sugars in, in long-term storage. The other thing about cycads is that they're super highly toxic. So when you eat them raw, they cause internal bleeding, liver damage, and even death. Um, so it's not really ideal to digest them. The question then becomes, why would people digest them? Yeah. Um, as it turns out, uh, back in the day, this, this island in Japan, there was quite a lot of residents on it. Um, and they were under kind of a not ideal ruling situation where they had um, plantations, I think, of brown sugar. Well, not of brown sugar, to produce brown sugar. And if their plantations failed, the emperor of the time would just basically refuse to send them food. So they would just cut them off and be like, ha, 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 good luck. So their only option was to eat these trees. And they have therefore worked out a labor-intensive four-week process, which involves you have to cut the tree, you have to cut the like pithy bit, grind it into a flower, and then wash it and dry it and wash it and dry it and wash it and dry it. And eventually that leaches out all of the toxins. Um, and then you basically get something that's starch, sago, that you can use um, as kind of an extra carbohydrate source to of add course. to noodles or, or make rice. Um, which is in, insanely difficult. And this article is talking about how, quite understandably, I think most of the people who know how to do this harvesting process are now old and the young people are not super keen to pick it up because you have a, a poisonous product. If you do it right, you get a very tasteless, boring starch. If you do it wrong, you die. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really important to understand how this is done because it's part of the cultural history and it's also, you know, a part of our huge... Uh, food history as humans in general yeah. so i think there was talks about people from a museum kind of trying to learn this process to understand something about how humans do what they do yeah yeah i, I don't blame the new generation of not being willing to spend time on this because it sounds like i mean it could it could come come in handy again but at the same time it was it was a mainly out of desperation from what i take mm -hmm. And if the cause and of the desperation is not there anymore, um, maybe it's it's a good thing. Mm. But there's also um, is it cassava or which is the the very common not not cassava? There's a very commonly used um, crop. It is cassava, I think. That it's it's actually also poisonous in its raw form, um, but you can do some sort of processing where you remove the the pro I don't know. It has like cyanide or arsenic type compounds in it. I mean, One potato has, um, in, in the green parts of mm. potato, it's very toxic. And also raw potato can't be digested properly. And cooking helps with that. So, um, mm. 
I don't know. There's something which also has to be... Maybe it's not cassava, because I think cassava, you can just cook it. But there's... Eh. Anyway. For another time, I will come up with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, with that, uh, I think we can move on to our red fact today. <laughs> because we don't... Smoothly done. <laughs> yeah. Smooth. Um, I couldn't find a non-horrible cat fact today. There were some really bad cat news t today. Nobody uh, wants to hear bad news here. And that's why we're, we're skipping that. And instead, we're going to talk um, about rats. Um, the second best thing after cats. Uh, and there's a species called the Florida wood rat. And they recently found in a study, I found it on sciencemag.org um, uh, by Stephanie Livingston, um, an article about that the fact that they found the nests of these rats um, pretty much devoid of very common bacteria that you usually find in nests of these, um, these animals. That uh, just sounds so icky. So first you've got rats, then the rats have nested, and now the rat nests have bacteria in them. Yeah. Um, somewhere they say, like in, in the article, it, it doesn't sound very nice. They usually have um, yeah, a ton of really disgusting things in there. Yeah, The, the dwellings covered in feces and urine seem potentially <laughs> risky places to live. Um, and now a new study suggests the opposite. And they found that um, there's a few um, bacteria still living there of the... Um, the genus where where is it pseudo pseudo nocardiaceae and streptomycetaceae so two <laughs> bacterial families that produce many common antibiotics inc including oh. uh, erythromycin and this could be an explanation for the their microbial cleanliness uh, of these um these nests why they're not completely overgrown with bacteria and fungi because they are these um few bacterial strains living there that produce an, uh, antibiotics. Um, now um, it's still too early for the researchers to actually say if that's sort of some sort of symbiosis, an adaptive trait, if this is just coincidence. Um, uh, so any of the sort of biological meaning of it is needs still to be discovered. Um, but it's a cool finding that these rat nests, these woodland rat nests, they are pretty clean in terms of microbes because they produce uh, antibiotics naturally. Cool. Yeah. This is Joram again from the cutting room. Um, just last minute before we actually finish editing this episode, we got another trailer incoming for you for another cool show. It's for Papa PhD. In a second, you'll hear the trailer. I just want to recommend you all to go over to the podcast and check it out. It's at papaphd.com. you find the link in the show notes. Let's play the trailer. Hi, my name is David Mendez and I host the Papa PhD podcast. Is it about parenthood? Not really, but it can be. Is it about the PhD? Not exclusively. It's about growing up during grad school and about the possibilities and best practices around starting to carve and shape your career path early on. Let's say you're asking yourself, what kind of job can I get with a PhD? Or telling yourself, no one hires PhDs outside academia. Well, then this podcast is for you. Tune in to Papa PhD every Thursday and listen to my guests' insightful stories of finding their way in academia, but also in entrepreneurship and in the most diverse sectors of the job market. Each week, I will cover themes ranging from work-life balance and mental health in grad school to advice on job hunting and career building. So go to papaphd.com or subscribe on your favorite platform to follow us every Thursday and to take part in the conversation. 
with that, I think um, I, it's time for us to make you go to all of our social media and follow us there, please. On Instagram and Facebook, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you can talk to me. It's at Plants Pipettes. We also have a website. We write blog posts, which are longer form, about various plant topics that interest us throughout the weeks. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. And this week, we talked about how the cucumber got its curve. And late last week, Yoram did an opinion piece about green peas and whether or not they can de detect CRISPR-Cas9 crops. Something we mentioned on last, pot the last week's podcast episode, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So if Indeed. you found that interesting back then, there's an article to go along with it with all of the links and quotes and stuff. Um, yeah, so uh, on, the, on the website, we have blog posts. You can also... Um, sort of follow our little side project that where we are part of Alan Earhart's amazing podcast Plant Book Club. Um, we recently recorded with minor technical difficulties that were um, uh, we recorded our episode about the book Braiding Sweetgrass. So as soon as I'll get to um, fixing the, the mistakes and actually um, editing that, the um, the new episode will come out it's uh it was a very cool book um yeah it was really great so i i can only recommend everyone to read the book and also listen to us talk about this amazing book um over at the plant book club on that topic i want to really thank all of the people on instagram who gave us some suggestions for the next book um we're not going to do any of those suggestions next time round because instead we're doing something that yoram came up with which is called the drunken botanist by amy stewart which is a book that talks about the many different um plants that that made their way into our very uh, various alcohols mm. um but thank you for all your suggestions and we're definitely keeping them in mind for next time around yeah yeah while I'm doing thank yous, I also want to thank some people on Twitter who made some very lovely comments today about our cucumber posts. So yeah. somebody said it was amusing and informative, which is what we aim to be. And we also had a comment that it was a nice example of scientific, good scientific communication. And that was very charming as well. So thank you to anyone who comments, likes, retweets, shares on any of our platforms. Thanks really a lot. It really does support us and it makes us feel happy and pleased. Yeah, it's one of the best ways uh, you can support us. Just spread the word. Tell everyone about uh, about us. Give us those gooey feelings inside. Um, you can also uh, rate us on iTunes or wherever you can rate podcasts. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Bye.